Thanks for joining the Heights Church podcast today. We hope that you enjoy the message. If you're in the Sydney area, be sure to join us at the Heights Church at Golston Road, Hornsby Heights, Sydney, Australia. Uh, we're reading from Micah 7, uh, verses 5 to 9, and then 18 to 20, starting with verse 5. Do not trust a neighbour. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonours his father, a daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God my Saviour. My God will hear me. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath until he pleads my case and upholds my cause. He will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. And then from 18 to 20. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnants of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Uh, So yes, this morning I want to turn our focus to the Old Testament book of Micah, which sits uh, in the section of the Bible that we know as the Minor Prophets, uh, otherwise known as the section of the Bible of that weird bit at the end of the Old Testament that I don't really know too much about and I skip over to get to the Gospels. Micah sits nice and flush in that section of the Bible. I'll turn our focus to it uh, this morning uh, because I think today that Uh, as we come into like a cold uh, winter's day in the middle of July, that Micah has something to say to us today. Micah was written by and was written about the message of the prophet of Micah. Micah was a Hebrew man, probably a man uh, they think of uh, lower class uh, from a small town, but not insignificant town called Moresheth. And Micah was essentially called to be a prophetic voice to the nation of Israel uh, in a way that was for and to the common man. And his main responsibility uh, was to call out and to expose the sin of the age, the sin of his day, uh, the many sinful practices uh, that were occurring in his society, uh, particularly by those who would claim to be God's people. Micah is essentially a summons to judgment and repentance uh, for personal sin, but also for a backlog of 500 years of sin, uh, which sat as sort of a rebellious debt against God. Micah came to Judah and to Israel and to Samaria in Lightning and thunder and judgment summarised in Micah 3.8 where Micah said, I am filled with strength. I am filled with the Spirit of God and with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. Well, the book of Micah today, I want to say, 
sort of still sits there like beeping away like a phone notification in our pocket that won't stop reminding us of something that is important, something that we may have forgotten. And my focus this morning is especially going to be on the last chapter, the chapter we just heard a little bit from, the last chapter of Micah, Micah chapter 7. And I think today that we might even be uh, surprised at how practical and how applicable these verses might be. And what I want to do this morning is sort of draw a connection between this seventh chapter uh, and the fact that as we are in 2023 in a totally different setting, uh, as we enter the seventh month of this year, that just as we enter the seventh month of this year, we need this seventh chapter of Micah. At this time of year, I think we can sometimes find that maybe the momentum in our spiritual life has slowed down, that we're drifting through the year, that we're even perhaps drifting a little bit away from God. And I propose that Micah's seventh chapter offers us something important this morning. Micah is ultimately a message of hope, but I also, I think, I believe a message of much needed inspiration and motivation. If you come in this morning thinking, I do need some inspiration and motivation for my relationship with God, I pray that these words from Micah might provide some fuel for that today, that we might be able to say with Micah, like he says in chapter 7, verse 8, that though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. And so the message this morning is titled, Sometimes We Need That Seventh uh, Chapter. Let me just pray again quickly. Uh, dear God, for those here this morning uh, that have been going strong, I pray that this message would be a message uh, to encourage and enable them to keep going. And for those of us here this morning, Lord, who feel like we have fallen or we've drifted, uh, may this be a message uh, of inspiration and motivation to get back off of the mat and to go again. And Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus. Uh, and it's our worst uh, fear that we would ever take him for granted, that moments like this would be a religious going through the motions. May this morning, again, even in our minds, be a moment that is sacred and precious where we deliberately come to a moment where we want to learn from you and hear from you. Speak to us again, God, we pray. Amen. Okay, so Micah. Micah brought a message of condemnation for a variety of sins that God's people had fallen to. I'm going to summarise the sins that Micah wanted to condemn into four categories, four types of sin. And so sin category number one, and this is a major one for Micah, sin category number one was the widespread exploitation of the poor through theft and greed. The widespread exploitation of the poor through theft and greed. A lot of Micah's condemnation and judgment was a macroeconomic one uh, that he was placing on the society at large. Micah described Judah as having fallen into social disorder and moral decay. In this setting, in this time, the poor uh, had been bit by bit, slowly uh, but surely, deprived of the land that was rightfully theirs. Their security had been taken away from them. And what had been created was cycles of poverty that were basically impossible to break out of. 
And what had happened was farms, properties had not only been pillaged and been taken away, but then re-rented to the original and rightful owners uh, at a price and with a tax and with an interest that sort of made it impossible for them to ever break out of uh, their feelings of, of hopelessness. And what it led to was uh, families being broken, society being broken, and the codes of justice that were outlined in the Torah uh, by God were ultimately sort of rejected by God's people, were explained away as sort of not being relevant to the economic times that they found themselves in. So what Micah describes in his day is sort of a deliberate tampering of the legal system uh, and the justice system by the upper class so that they could fabricate scenario after scenario where the poor could be exploited and where the rich and the privileged could have clear passage to execute their sort of financial dealings with impunity. The sin of Micah's age especially was essentially oppression of the vulnerable through corruption of the powerful. And while I think this is a sin that would be interesting for us to compare to our modern society and and the way that we operate our society on a macro level, it's probably out of the four sins I'm going to describe the one that we might feel uh, that we relate to the least, perhaps. Not to say that we can't be and shouldn't be challenged about our own like ethical decisions that we make uh, financially and our microeconomic uh, decisions that we make, but I'm not necessarily going into that aspect this morning. But it is important for us to know that for Micah, the sin of the exploitation of the poor was sort of a major overarching one uh, that was rife and problematic and hung over everything. This sin led into sin category number two, perhaps one that we can relate to a little easier, which was uh, the sin of relying on ritual while neglecting a lifestyle of obedience and dependence on God. Sin category two is re- was relying on ritual while neglecting a lifestyle of obedience and dependence of on God. And so what is implied in the book of Micah as you read through it is that the same upper class of people who were guilty of exploiting the poor, who were guilty of, of injustice, who were guilty of what Micah described as like the worst sins, those upper class who were the most guilty were also the ones who were the first to show up to church or to temple to fulfil their religious duties. And these people dressed the right way, they knew the right things to do, they brought the right sacrifices, they knew how to behave appropriately in a religious setting. And so amongst all of this social disorder and decay, Micah points out something that I think today that we should also remember is that there is always going to be an overlap between those guilty of neglecting God in their everyday decisions and those who know how to show up properly on a Sunday. There's always going to be an overlap. And perhaps like for you, for me, it's a scary overlap because we know how often we fall into that overlap. And Micah was eager to point out the futility of the comfortable class depending on religion and ritual to make them respectable before the throne of 
God. These people had the outer appearance and trappings of proper religious people and even claimed that God's protection was over them because of their religion. But like the people in Michael's time, we are always at risk of focusing on our own personal sacrifices, our own personal religion at the expense of our personal obedience and dependence on Christ, at the expense of a genuine, humble lifestyle seeking to follow God. And so sin category number three that Micah wants to point out and expose is the particular sinister nature of premeditated sin, the particular sinister nature of premeditated sin. And the truth is God despises all sin. I think we can all agree, okay, simple idea, all sin is bad. Sin equals bad. Whatever type of sin equals bad. But what Micah exposes here is, and what he calls out, is that type of sin that is pre-planned and pre-accounted for. The type of sin that is coldly and sometimes even arrogantly built into the daily plan right alongside prayer and ritual and religion. The planning and provision of sin into lifestyle uh, is something that we are all tempted to do because we either are tempted to think that God's grace is either weak or God's grace is naive and can be taken advantage of. And so Micah says in Micah chapter 2, Woe to those who plan iniquity. Woe to those who plot evil on their beds. He says those who would pre-plan their sin or pre-account for their sin, woe to them, curses on them, the worst possible outcome for them. And he says in verse 3, he sort of says, okay, so you've made your plans. Well, God is making his own plans too. It says in verse 3 of that chapter, chapter 2 of Micah, therefore the Lord says, I am planning disaster against these types of people. You cannot save yourselves and you will no longer walk proudly. And the truth is in our life, we should resist all sin, but pre-planned sin is one that should particularly convict us. Pre-planned sin is one that I think Micah throughout the ages is still making a point of calling out. We've been going through Romans and we're going to continue going through Romans after the holidays. Romans 6 puts it like this about the idea of taking advantage of God's generous grace. Romans chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that sin may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from dead through glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We too may live a new life Keep that in the back of your mind as we come towards the end of Micah. But for the time being, let's go on to sin category number four, that being the misusing, uh, the seriousness of being God's representative. And all of us in the worlds that we live in are called 
to be God's representative. I wonder how you are taking up that responsibility in your world. I wonder how uh, serious you are taking that role of being a representative of God into the fields and into the interactions, into the different places that you find yourselves in throughout the week. But there is a particular type of representative, the religious representative, uh, that uh, should particularly take this warning seriously. You see, in Micah's day, there was a religious peace that was offered at a price. The preacher would say to the people, okay, treat me well, because if you treat me well, God will have a kind word for you and for your future. It was pay to play. It was pay, uh, pay me well, treat me well, and God will do the same for you. And in that time, God's religious leaders had used their position of religious power to commit grave injustices. They weren't calling out society and, and the upper class for their sins. Rather, instead, they were participating and enabling the very sins that Micah was calling out. They operated within the realms of bribery. And what they did was they bent their versions of justice to favour the wealthy and the powerful only to further oppress the poor and the vulnerable. They used their religious position of power not to do good, but to cause harm. And I think in a lot of ways, this sin is perhaps the worst sin of all. The New Testament reflects the idea that those who would take on a certain position in the church or the religious setting should be careful to do so. James chapter 3 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly, speaking not of those who perhaps teach in a high school or primary school setting, but teach on a Sunday. Those who would, that would presume to take God's Word, basically what I'm doing now, and say, hey, this is what I think God's Word says to us. We think, okay, we should be encouraging you know, people. Oh, the more people we get, you know, the better. Even say to our young people, you know, you could be a preacher, you could be a teacher. Well, James says, actually, don't do it. Don't go into that space because all you're doing by going into that space is inviting more judgment from God into your life. Those who teach from God's word, James says, will be judged more strictly. I personally think that God holds a most special judgment for those who utilise positions of religious power or pulpit in order to corrupt or to cause harm. I think there is a special harsher judgment for those who take something that should be uh, really uh, taking God's word and using it to bless his people and using that position and that entitlement to cause harm to people. And we know of lots of stories throughout history and, and not so uh, distant history, but even ongoing today, those who have done this. And I think we see condemnation of this in the deepest level, even in the language of Jesus. In the language of Jesus, uh, it is for the religious hypocrite 
uh, that Jesus reserves his harshest judgment for those who would take uh, religious power and use it to harm the vulnerable. Jesus reserves his harshest judgment. We see this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, where Jesus says, If anyone causes any of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. Or Matthew chapter 23. Uh, Verse 27, for example, says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to be righteous, but in the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. We should, I think, be careful not to be quick to judge uh, based on that outside appearance because even a whitewashed, shiny tomb looks, you know, nice and clean and neat, but inside is full of death and decay. And so it was with Micah. It was these same types of people that God was most after in his judgment. The prophets who accepted financial incentives to change their theology the prophets who took sort of advantages in their own life and were comfortable then to bend their message to suit the powerful and further ostracise the vulnerable. It's those people who God was coming after the hardest. In Micah chapter 3, it says, This is what the Lord says, As for the prophets who lead my people astray, those who proclaim peace as long as they have something to eat, Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness will come to you without divination. Day is coming when the sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. And so in this sin, but in all of the categories of sin, Micah is just calling out everybody. Micah 6 summarises the bad ending that is forecast for God's people in Micah's day summarised essentially by the same thing that we can experience today, the ultimate frustration that a a lifestyle of unrepented sin brings us. And this is what it says in Micah 6. uh, Therefore, this is God speaking, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat, but you won't be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up, but save nothing. Because of what you save, I will give it instead to the sword. You will plant, but you won't harvest. You'll press olives, but not use the oil. You will crush grapes, but not drink the wine. The frustration that comes with a lifestyle of sin, that when we give in to uh, drift and sin, we find that ultimately the things that bring us satisfaction no longer bring us satisfaction. Everything will be futile and frustrating And without God's blessing, even the good things in our life can start to feel empty. Micah said to the people of his day that as long as the people's behaviour was characterised by these sins, they could never be pleasing to God no matter how much they appeared to worship him in their religious ceremonies. And unless they repented, Judah was heading for certain judgment. 
And so that's a lot, I think, for us to sort of process and, and take in. Essentially, I think this morning what we can really be challenged by is our own inclination to coast uh, when it comes to the disconnect uh, that always threatens to appear between our personal genuine relationship with God and the Sunday type ritual. Those things are always threatening to, to, to come apart, to be separate, to be two different parts of our life, that, that it's always threatening that in our life that we would be coming sort of dry and, and, and lacking enthusiasm for our relationship with God on a genuine everyday level, but we would still on a Sunday know how to sing the songs and pray the prayers and act the part. And the truth is that just as in Micah's day for us today, when we lean too heavily on just religion and ritual, we separate the aspects of our life. We separate aspects of ourself. We start to come apart. When we compartmentalise in a way like that, it becomes toxic to our passion for God. And so when we drift, the Sunday ritual is not one that we partake in so that we can energetically and enthusiastically engage with God and worship Him and engage with God's community that, that we find ourselves amongst, but instead it's emotion that we're tempted to go through. It's a box that we're tempted to simply tick. And we do so partly, true, truly and rightly, because we believe at least we're hanging in there. We at least we're doing somewhat of the right thing. But as we today have reflected on the sins of Micah's day, you perhaps might be sitting there this morning thinking, okay, mate, my sins are exactly like that. But you might also be sitting there thinking and reflecting upon the own ways that sin has sort of drifted into your life at the expense of your passion for God. And the way that this year, even the ways that in the ways that uh, you have been living your life in the first six months of this year, that Uh, sin has drifted into your world, into your lifestyle. And so the first six chapters of this year are written just as the first six chapters of Micah were written. And for them, it ended with a bad conclusion in terms of where God's people sat before God. Yet, in chapter 7, there is a message of hope. It doesn't end with the bad ending. There is a, a, a light. There is a, a possibility, a possibility for something different, a possibility for something new and fresh, a powerful mercy that shines through even the judgment. And so in chapter 7, what we find in Micah is sort of just an individual. This individual is a personification. This individual is like a representation of the whole. This individual who sits uh, downcast and ashamed because of their sin. And yet for this individual, as for all individuals within the community, there was still hope. And as there were four sin categories of Micah's day, this morning I think we can also learn four important lessons from Micah 7 and from this Micah 7 individual in terms of some healthy patterns that we can replicate in terms of our own faith. And so lesson number one that we can learn from this Micah 7 individual is that the person of faith has an attitude of not letting the enemy get under their skin. 
Something that many of us know well, but some of us maybe haven't learnt this yet, is that one of the greatest tricks of the enemy, one of the greatest tricks that Satan plays on us is to invite us into sin, telling us, hey, it's not going to be that bad. It's not that sinful. It's not that bad. You know, God will understand. It's not that bad. And then when we fall into it, he flips straight away into overplaying just how doomed and disgusting we are. It goes from, oh, it's not that bad to you are the worst and you have no hope. If only everyone knew how terrible you were, you know, you would you would just run away and be and be doomed forever. That's his greatest trick. And if we listen too carefully to the criticisms of the enemy, we then become tempted, I think, to join in. And we think the most holy and righteous thing we can do is then to pile on ourselves as well, make ourselves feel even worse than we ought to because we've fallen into sin. And then what happens is a spiral of feeling terrible and without hope. And then what makes us feel better again? Satan over here going, hey, come back to the sin. It won't be that bad. It'll make you feel better. That cycle is Satan's greatest trick. And the truth is, whether it's other people, whether it's Satan or whether it's our own brain just finding fault, when we fall into sin, we still have a measure of control over the attitude that we will have. We do not have to let the enemy get under our skin. We can say like the individual in Micah, enemy, do not gloat over me. We do not need that extra condemnation that stands and subtracted with subtracted from all hope. The person of faith says, you know what? Even when I've fallen, I look to God for my purpose and my value. And so lesson number two that the person of faith has is an attitude of expectation, an expectation that there are better days ahead. A person of faith doesn't look to what others think about them, doesn't even look to what you might think about yourself, but instead looks to what God has to offer in terms of their future. The individual says, though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I have fallen, the Lord will be my light. Will. Expectation. And if you this morning have been tempted to fall into a hopeless condemnation, let me perhaps offer another possibility. Let's get off the mat. Let's get up again and let's rise with Christ. Micah chapter 7 verse 11 Uh, this expectation is expressed in terms of rebuilding. It says the day for building your walls will come. The same walls in our lives that have collapsed, Micah says the day for building them will come. And in your life, I think in the second half of this year, there is an opportunity to rebuild some things that have fallen apart. When we rise with Christ, there is hope. And there is a day coming that you can have expectation about in your life when you will expand again, when you will grow again, where you will be amazed by Christ again. And while the enemy is circling your camp, you can have that expectation of an ultimate victory. And so this Micah 7 individual begs God to forgive them. Please, God, forgive me. And after six chapters of sin and judgment and condemnation in the book of Micah, it begs the question, perhaps, how can this person come to God and ask for forgiveness. Why would God forgive them? Why would God listen even to this individual? And so lesson number three that the person of faith in Micah chapter 7 has for us is that the person of faith has a dependence not on their own character or goodness, but on God's character. 
that we would not depend on how good we are, but we would depend on who God is. That we would know that God's mercy is more powerful than his judgment and his anger. That we would be a people that trusts who God says he is. That we can trust that his character is one of love and mercy and tenderness to the repentant. And so lesson number four, finally, that the person of faith has a dependence not on their own promises to change, but on God's promises. The person of faith doesn't depend on, you know what, I'm going to do better. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. God, I'm not going to do this again. God, I'm not going to make that mistake again. God, I'm not going to fall into that sin again. No, they're not depending on their own promises, but the person of faith depends on the promises that God has already made over them and about them. And so this person's prayer can be like our prayer that appeals not to our ideas of what we can promise about our future, but what God has already promised. Like in verse 20 of chapter 7, this person says, God, you will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. So for this person, he depended on what God said about God's people and the descendants of Jacob and Abraham. And for us, we can depend on the promises that God has made for those who place their faith in Christ, that those promises are true and remain to be true. And so this individual faith is everyone, but also Micah shows us that everyone has the capacity to be this individual. Everyone has this capacity to be the individual that says, you know what, I'm going again, I'm trying again, I'm getting off the mat again. The thing is, we can't necessarily control uh, other people. We can't repent, perhaps, on behalf of a wider group. But what we can do, even today, what we can do is we can take responsibility for our relationship with God and we can take responsibility for our own repentance. Repentance simply being a turning away from sin and turning back towards God. We can take responsibility for that. We too can humble ourselves. We too can repent and ask God for renewed and refresh, refresh mercy based not on our character, not based on our promises to do better, but rather we again today are invited to lean wholly on God's character and His promises. And the promise for those with genuine sorrow over their sins, genuine in some terms, just empty-handedness before the throne of God, Micah offered and offers a communal song of worship that we can all participate in, a song of both heartache and a song of hope expressed on behalf of anybody that would want to be part of this group that wants to get off the mat and go again. In verse 18 of chapter 7, the song goes like this, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression? God, you do not stay angry forever but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea. This year might be halfway done, but this year, 2023, it's still halfway to go. And God would again want to say to you this morning that the sins that are sort of hanging around your neck, He again wants to toss them into the depths of the sea. And so for some of us, the message might be today, might be, hey, let's keep 
going with an energy and enthusiasm. Let's keep going in service of the Lord. Let's keep going in our dependence and faith in Christ. But the message for some of us this morning, and I pray for those that need it, are hearing it, that the message for you today might be, hey, let's get up and let's go again. That even though you're down, you don't have to stay down. Though we may have fallen, in Christ we will rise. Micah says, though we may sit in darkness, the Lord can. And today, if you want to rise again in faith, the Lord will be your light in the darkness. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for your ongoing and everlasting goodness to us. We thank you for the opportunities that you provide again to go again. We pray that we would be a, com- a community that is uh, energised, enthusiastic and excited uh, about our dependence on you, by our focus on you, by our worship of you. And so, Lord, today we come to you uh, not with our character, not with our promises, but we come to you with our own sin and iniquity and the own ways that we all have fallen short and drifted. And we pray again this morning that you in Christ would forgive us. And Lord, in that forgiveness, Lord, may me be energised and excited to see you for who you are again. Lord, help us to find you again today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.